Hi and welcome to Data Hack Radio. This is Kunal, your host for the show. Now, this is a very special episode for a variety of reasons. The first reason is that this is the 25th episode of the show. And these 25 episodes have been heard for more than 150,000 times by people all across the globe. Yes, for more than 150,000 times over the last few months. I can't thank enough to all our community members, the guests who have been on the show, and the support which everyone has provided in creating Data Hack Radio a success. Another big reason why I call this episode special is that you will have a ton of learning by listening to this episode. In this episode, we talk to Paige Bailey. Paige is currently product manager for Swift for TensorFlow at Google. She completed her masters in geosciences from Rice University and then started her data science journey at Chevron. Post that she worked for about 17 months with Microsoft before joining Google as a senior developer advocate. We talked to Paige about her journey, some of the fascinating development happening in TensorFlow, and specifically why and how is Swift for TensorFlow evolving. There is so much to take away from this episode that I've personally decided to get hands-on with Swift after Data Hack Summit 2019. Hi, Peach. Welcome to Data Hack Radio. Uh, really excited to have you on the show. So let's start with you know a bit about your background, how you started your journey in data science, and uh, how did you end up at uh, Google in your current role? Excellent. And so thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really happy to be here and to talking to all the great data scientists and data scientists in training. Um, my background is a little bit different, I guess, than than most machine learning engineers. Um, my uh, my undergrad was very focused on uh, sort of geophysics and applied math, um, and all of my research was very planetary science focused. Um, so I had a couple of internships uh, for NASA projects at the Laboratory for Atmospheric and Space Physics in Boulder, um, and then Southwest Research Institute in San Antonio. And my third internship um, was uh, was. in the uh, in the oil and gas industry at Chevron um and I got to do really cool things with computers for them um and after that they gave me a job for grad school so um I went from being a planetary scientist to being um to being a kind of a data scientist in the oil and gas industry um and then graduate work was focused on computer science and also on something called carbonate geology Um, I had an opportunity to go and work at Microsoft again doing machine learning, um, and since I had been doing it in more of an applied sense at Chevron, I thought that it would be great to kind of figure out how to to understand how the tools are built themselves, um, and also especially from the the sort of cloud computing side. So at Microsoft, I was um, on the Azure team under Scott Guthrie and under um, Mark Rusinovich, who's the CTO of Azure. Uh, and yep, and it was it was a lot of fun. I learned a ton. Really enjoyed the work at Microsoft. Um, and around October of last year, 
And another opportunity came up where I could go and work on the TensorFlow team to help build out open source tooling for, uh, for deep learning in particular. And so, so I've been doing that since November of last year. And I just recently became a product manager on the TensorFlow team. Wow. So that's that's actually quite diverse roles in, in a period of about seven, eight years. And so, uh, and yeah. then, uh, so you've seen cloud computing, you're, you're obviously in the middle of TensorFlow action. So that's great. So uh, when you joined uh, uh, in October, uh, was the role different than what it is right now? How yes. So, and that's a great question. So I had started as a developer advocate for TensorFlow. Mm-hmm. Um, which is uh, which is a fantastic role. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, and as a developer advocate, kind of your day-to-day responsibilities are to um, to go to conferences, to talk about the product, to um, to be kind of ever present on GitHub, to mm-hmm. uh, to um, be talking one-on-one with a lot of developers, um, primarily developers external to Google. Um, to understand what the gaps are in the product um, and to take that feedback back to the product teams Mm -hmm. so that they can close those issues and resolve the gaps. Um, So so there are a lot of similarities between being a developer advocate versus being a product manager. Um, But I really love uh, about a product manager is that it's quite a bit more hands-on and Mm -hmm. I'm directly responsible for the success of the product that I'm working on. Um, so right now, the, the product that I'm primarily responsible for is something called Swift for TensorFlow um, and uh, making sure that it's successful um, and that it has everything that it needs to, uh, to, to, you know, make sure that it's meeting the needs of Google engineers internally and also the external community. And what I love about being the PM for an API is that as a PM, you're expected to know your product better than anybody else, right? Mm-hmm. Like you have to you have to know all the ins and the outs. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're working on like a GUI application, right? That means that you know how to configure it, you click a whole bunch of buttons, et cetera. But as the PM for an API, that means I still get to use it. Mm-hmm. So I'm still programming, um, which is wonderful. And I still get to sort of test out how the API works with developer tools like VS Code or with uh, Collaboratory or with Jupyter Notebooks. Um, it's just that uh, my primary responsibility is to say like, hey, engineering team, the user experience for this isn't good. Or like, I tried doing an integration test and this doesn't work. Like, what's up? So, <laughs> yep. So, yep. It's a lot of fun both ways. Yeah, and uh, I mean, a lot of action for a period which is still less than a year. And uh, so, so that's great. So let me, you know, uh, kind of go deep in uh, your role as a developer advocate. And I'll, I'll actually want to spend some time on Swift for TensorFlow as well. So uh, as a, you know, developer advocate, as you said, you were uh, responsible for, you know, making sure that uh, the end users or uh, uh, people uh, developing products on TensorFlow uh, get the right ecosystem, uh, I believe. So, uh, and, you know, uh, parallelly, develop, uh, TensorFlow itself has uh, seen development. So uh, the version 2.0 came out uh, some time back. So did you see a change in the way or the 
type of people who were using it because when it came out initially it was very uh, much focused on you know people who can be hands on coding then keras came on top and uh, you know uh, which was a higher level interface uh, in some ways and now uh, you know keras is becoming the default uh, for tensorflow so so how has been your perspective as a developer advocate on this journey and how do you see this entire development excellent so that's a that's a really wonderful question when i first started using tensorflow in 2015 mm-hmm. um so when it was first open sourced it was incredibly uh sort of painful to use for someone that was coming from scikit-learn mm-hmm. um so the api was really really expansive um there was a lot of duplication across the api surface um you had this weird concept of a session this weird concept of of feed dictionaries you had functions that were taking other functions and if you are a distributed systems engineer that was used to that kind of operation um i i guess it made sense but if you were a data scientist it made very little sense in the slightest and keras is yep and keras is really what made tensorflow usable for me um so so having um having keras as the recommended high level api and building it directly into tensorflow 2.0 um i think was a great path forward and it's uh sort of that decision and also um the the move towards eager execution and reducing duplication across the code base all of that is directly from user feedback so from people saying hey you know we really like um we really like uh sort of the the feel of scikit-learn the feel of something like chainer or pytorch um with eager execution like uh that seems like something that tensorflow should have instead of the static graph uh mm-hmm. so so making making that work um and also making it scale so now uh keras with the addition of two lines of code um you're able to scale a, a complete model from a single machine running on a, sing- a single cpu to multiple gpu machines or even multiple tpu machines Um so it's yep so it's a lot of really great work has been done by the TensorFlow 2.0 team um and we're really excited to to sort of see everybody try it out um and to to see what they build sure and then did that uh, make a huge difference in the kind of interactions you were having with the developers and did that change and and what was the community response uh, for for some of these changes it's uh it's a little bit um it's a little bit friendlier um to map to the concept of building neural networks um then suddenly a lot of people who were scared away from tensorflow initially uh suddenly came back to start trying to use it um and and that's been really exciting to see it also means that you suddenly get problems that aren't distributed systems problems and that aren't really like deep learning research problems um mm-hmm. but things like uh geophysicists or earth scientists or even um you know sort of english majors in universities being able to say like hey i have a problem i think it could be helped with deep learning like help me help me find and cultivate data um and put it into a keras model so like suddenly you can um instead of having a grad student sit and look at pictures of satellite imagery 
and class and you know classify them as five different kinds by hand, um, suddenly they're able to just you know write a Python script that does exactly the same thing and saves hours and hours of time. Got it, got it. And uh, during this period, any you know specific application or use which you remember which came to you as a surprise or uh, was very different from the use cases which we usually see in the data science community? Oh, absolutely. Like I am, I am continuously blown away by the creativity of our developers. Mm-hmm. Like there is um, there. So for example, um, there was recently a reinforcement learning library that was created for Keras and uh, uh, so we also had um, a, something called the Powered by TF Challenge, mm-hmm. which was announced uh, at the Dev Summit earlier this year. Um, mm-hmm. And the the submissions for it were everything from, oh gosh, something called BioBert. So uh, so automatically making uh, like you ask a question, listing out the symptoms that you have. Um, and then it would scrape through a whole bunch of different um, sort of doctor doctor recommendations. Um, there was another there was another person who was a grad student that uh, built a Keras model to classify asteroids and to classify different kinds of exoplanets. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a there was another uh, person that was building a model to um, to like automatically uh, play Flappy Bird for you. Um, there have been people who uh, who have used Keras and who have used TensorFlow to kind of understand hand gestures um, hmm. and to use that for gameplay. So even if uh, even if you were kind of walking around in a um, in a game environment uh, that didn't necessarily have the ability to use things like the oh I don't even know what they're called but like the the little gloves that you can wear that. Um, sort of recognize your finger movements and then do gameplay for you. Yeah. Um, the the you could build that functionality yourself with TensorFlow. Mm. Um, there were people who were using um, GANs, so sort of generative models to create uh, to create textured experiences for games and for cloths and other kinds of material. Like it's wow. it's essentially the the coolest thing to me is that once you understand machine learning concepts and deep learning concepts, suddenly you see use cases everywhere. Like when I'm standing in, in line for coffee each morning and like, uh, and, and sort of people are taking longer than anticipated or like they're, you know, the, the way that drinks are being created isn't optimal. Like somebody's, uh, somebody's working on a drink that takes six minutes um, and meanwhile, there are like three other drinks that take about a minute each that are that are waiting um, while there's a six minute lag. And suddenly you start thinking like, man, I bet this would be great to have as like a, a Keras prototype problem yeah. like, and speed up, speed up my coffee experience in the morning. But it's 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 been wonderful. Um, and I, I'm really excited to see even more use cases um, in the upcoming months. Correct. And uh, are these examples, the ones which you mentioned coming from Powered by TF Challenge, uh, available in open? So can can the community read about some of these things? Oh, absolutely. Like uh, there, there are a ton. I think we had 660 participants or thereabout for the Powered by TF Challenge. But I also have several Twitter threads just kind of collecting all of the TensorFlow use cases and listing them out. I'd be happy to share them too. 
Um, but, but all of these, all of these projects are open source. Wow. And the RL library, which you mentioned, was there a name to a library or this was just still under development? Are you referring to Scikit-learn maybe? Uh, okay. No, I was referring to the, so when you started, you said there was a reinforcement learning library. Oh, yes. Yes. So that is, um, that is called Huskarl. Um, H-U-S-K-A-R-L. Um, and uh, the, the, uh, it is certainly still under development. Um, and I'm sure the, the creator would love to have additional open source help. Sure, sure, definitely. That that definitely sounds uh, exciting, and then yeah, a lot of interesting uh, use cases. So you know, from uh, doing this uh, community developer advocate positions, how did this move towards being a project manager for Swift for TensorFlow happen, and and what was that change uh, like at your end? Right. That's a that's another really great question. And so so there's a very big difference um, between being a project manager and a program manager and a technical program manager and a product manager at Google. Mm -hmm. um, and all of them like all of them are uh, sort of used with the same with the same uh, term elsewhere. Um, and mean different things too, but at Google they mean something very specific. So sure. if you're a if you're a program manager, um, mm -hmm. you're usually managing um, sort of uh, processes, right? Mm -hmm. So you would be planning events, you would be dealing with logistics, those sorts of things. Sure. If you're a technical program manager, you're probably dealing with bugs and issues. Um, you're dealing with, uh, you know, making sure all of the builds are successfully launched um, and that they continue to work as expected. Um, project managers are more, um, you know, sort of looking at Kanban boards um, and, and making sure that people are finishing their tasks on time. Mm -hmm. And product managers, product managers are something kind of different. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's why I was really excited to kind of um, to kind of enter into that space, mm -hmm. um, the most effective product managers have a lot of years of engineering under their belt, yeah. and what you are responsible for is sort of deciding what the strategic directory of a or the strategic direction of a product should be. Mm -hmm. So usually, like so, so you would have um, like there's a product manager. For TensorFlow JS, mm -hmm. um, there's a product manager for TensorFlow Lite, mm -hmm. um, and the the product that I manage is Swift for TensorFlow. And so things that things that I'm responsible for are kind of understanding market fit, mm -hmm. um, building out partnerships with uh, teams internal to Google and mm -hmm. external to Google. Mm -hmm. um, prioritizing what things the engineer should work on, yeah. and then also uh, sort of uh, trying out the product, filing bugs if things don't work, and prioritizing which features should be added. And since I'm also responsible for the product, um, that also means that if something needs to be done, like if there's a new feature that's kind of mission critical, um, mm -hmm. I'm also expected to kind of roll up my sleeves and help the engineers create that feature. So it's really, it's really kind of, um, 
defining what the product should be, mm -hmm. uh, clearing off all obstacles in order to make sure the product happens, um, and and also like doing every every job under the sun in order to make sure that it's successful. Sure. Hi everyone. A quick announcement about Data Hack Summit 2019. Our flagship conference, which also happens to be one of the largest applied machine learning conference in Asia, is happening from 13th of November to 16th of November 2019. Last year, Data Hack Summit was attended by more than 1,000 people and had thought leaders from across the globe. This year, we have added an entire extra day to have more than 30 hack sessions in the conference. In each hack session, you will see an industry expert come in front and build an AI application in front of your eyes. We sold out all our tickets last year and we will likely do so again this year. If you want to attend Data Hack Summit, do check out the workshops, the hack sessions, and the talks happening at Data Hack Summit 2019. The link to the conference page has been shared in the notes of the show. So I guess the, you know, very first question which uh, usually comes up uh, uh, in mind uh, of people, or at least it did to me when I heard uh, Swift for TensorFlow for the first time, was you know why why Swift for TensorFlow? And uh, right. uh, uh, and I've seen a lot. It's a very active community, and and I've heard a lot lot of great things. But uh, uh, I would still want to hear that answer from you. And what is your perspective on that? Right, and so um, that's a really great question. Um, we have open design meetings every Friday, mm -hmm. um, so if you if you have any interest in the development, uh, we I strongly recommend that you sign up for the mailing list and and come to the open design meetings. Mm -hmm. But the thing that really excites me about Swift for TensorFlow and the person who created the project, Chris Latner. Yeah. Um, also works at Google on the TensorFlow team. He uh, so he created Swift, he mm -hmm. created um, uh, LLVM, and yeah. he also yeah. created uh, substantial amounts of Clang. Mm -hmm. um, and so this and MLIR um, are are his two biggest projects um, for the TensorFlow team to date. Um, but but Swift uh, is kind of awesome in the sense that it looks almost like Python. Like if you squint a little bit, it looks a great deal like Python, okay. um, but it's also super fast. So mm -hmm. you get performance parity with C++. Mm -hmm. It's cross-platform in the sense that it works on Windows, Linux, Mac, iOS, Android, and also embedded devices. Mm -hmm. um, have C and C++ interop. Mm -hmm. um, and also Python interop. So if you want to import Python and use any Python library, you can. Um, but it also creates a really nice sort of stable base mm -hmm. for people to connect high, uh, sort of lightweight Python APIs to. Um, so, so the thing that I really like about Swift for TensorFlow is that we were talking a lot to people that would create a model um, mm -hmm. and they would want to deploy it and they would end up having like five or six different deployment pipelines um, for the same exact model that they would have to maintain. 
and you had um, you had an app that was able to detect different kinds of um, different kinds of, of foods or different kinds of products, yeah. um, or an app that uh, that sort of needed to adapt to to end users um, end user specifications. If you wanted to deploy that app to Android, your process would be you export the model as a saved model. Mm -hmm. um, uh, after writing it in Python, um, you convert the saved model to a TF Lite flat buffer, and mm -hmm. then you put that on device. Um, mm -hmm. And that de that device, based on the based sort of on the hardware, mm -hmm. um, it might be able to be accelerated. It might not. It might be able to run. It might not. Mm -hmm. um, if you, you would also have to take the same model if you had an iOS app, um, take the Python, convert it to CoreML, mm -hmm. put that on an iOS phone. Um, but for each one of those deployment targets, you would also probably have to be defining a data input pipeline that would probably be in more of a native language. So it might either be Java for Android or it might be Swift for iOS. Yeah. Um, and then if you had it on a server, um, like if you were running it in a browser, you would also have a completely different deployment target um, with different data pipelines. Mm -hmm. So the nice thing about Swift is that you can create um, you can create a model. Mm -hmm. um, you can use it on Android, on iOS, on the browser, um, and also have the same consistent data pipeline. And you would know that it would be fast. Um, and there's also the added value that uh, so, for example, on-device training. Uh, an example that I always like to mention um, would be hearing aids, right? So, so a lot of hearing aid companies have um, the ability to Bluetooth pair hearing aids to um, cell phone apps. And so, what happens is if a person wearing a hearing aid walks into a really noisy room, they can pull out their phone, they can make the volume louder or softer based on that room. Um, or if they're talking to someone and the person has like a very specific pitch to their voice, then the person can kind of toggle the pitches on uh, like up and down to to get better um, to get better uh, sort of hearing capability. Mm -hmm. And the um, the ideal situation would be that the device um, sort of automatically anticipates those users' yeah. needs. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we're um, so that's what we're building right now with Swift for TensorFlow um, mm -hmm. is the ability to do on-device training, um, mm -hmm. the ability to have one consistent model deployed anywhere, and to also be able to periodically retrain on-device. This is also important for things like GDPR mm -hmm. um, because then suddenly your data never has to leave device. Got it. Got it. So it seems like it would also have impact on, you know, TensorFlow Lite as a as a product. So so how how do these two things kind of uh, uh, sit together, and and where do they interact? Right. So TensorFlow Lite is fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, it is it is hyper optimized for inferencing. Mm -hmm. um, so being able to have very very speedy inferencing, a lot of wonderful work has been done. Um, for uh, sort of quantization and model pruning, um, and we and and we strongly feel um, that if tensor like if if your use case is just for inferencing, um, mm -hmm. and you've already got a model that's implemented in Python, um, okay. then 
or, or like some other, some other language, then TensorFlow Lite would probably be a good solution for you. TensorFlow Lite is also battle hardened, right? In the sense that it's been around for quite some time. Yeah. Um, and Swift for TensorFlow, we're just on version 0.5. Right. So, so, so I strongly suggest like still like TF Lite is still around. It's still going to be, it's still awesome to use hmm. excellent user experience. Um, but uh, Swift for TensorFlow is um, if you have needs for on-device training, hmm. um, you could, uh, like certainly come to our open design meetings. Um, we'll probably be talking a great deal more about the, the work that we've been doing so far in that space. Um, in the upcoming months. Um, God, God. Yeah. No, that definitely sounds very interesting. So uh, tell us a bit more about, you know, the community and the mailing list. So how, how big is it? How many people are, uh, if you have an estimate of which you can share, how many people are currently using Swift for TensorFlow and, uh, you know, uh, where is it in its evolution right now? Right. So Swift for TensorFlow. Um, Jeremy Howard, if you're familiar with, um, if you're familiar with him, um, he uh, like has created. Um, I, I blame him for a lot of our success. <laughs> yeah, um, and he is. <laughs> yeah, he is. He's wonderful. Yeah. Um, he and Sylvan, um, but they've they've implemented a new version of FastAI's library on top mm -hmm. of Swift for TensorFlow, and he's also. Um, worked with Chris and has made a sort of public declaration um, yeah. that Python's not fast enough, uh, <laughs> and that the future iterations of the course will be will be implemented in Swift. Um, he's yeah. also re-implemented all of um, like so. So he has a complete curriculum of fast AI notebooks um, that have been implemented using uh, using Swift for TensorFlow. Um, and based on based on that, um, we have quite a bit of interest from the data science community, yeah. and also um, sort of the Swift developer community is huge. Apple mentioned, I think, in their 2018 um, WWDC keynote that there are 20 million people using Swift, 20 million developers. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so we're really hoping that uh, some of the mobile developers our certified machine learning master's program is one of the most successful machine learning program in the industry. You not only learn about several algorithms in machine learning, but you also apply them to solve problems used by companies in hiring machine learning engineers and data scientists. In addition, you get a complete module on structured thinking and problem solving, one of the most important skills which companies look at when they are hiring data scientists and the skill which determines their success in long term. You also get all the support for your interview preparations and a ton of case studies and problems to take away and practice at your own end. Go and check out this program on courses.analyticswithya.com. The link to the same has been added in the show notes. And uh, what would be some of the, you know, initial resources which you would recommend uh, for, let's say, someone who wants to get into uh, uh, this uh, ecosystem and wants to learn uh, and maybe knows 
TensorFlow already, but wants to use Swift for TensorFlow, uh, uh, where where can they find these resources? Excellent. So I would strongly recommend Jeremy Howard's intro notebooks. Mm -hmm. um, but also, we were really, really fortunate. Um, Google Summer of Code this year, we had 20 students working on TensorFlow projects, okay. and five of them um, were working on Swift for TensorFlow projects. Wow. Uh, yeah, and so two of the students um, ended up building a library for traditional machine learning models in Swift. Mm -hmm. um, one of the students ended up creating a library for data visualization um, called SwiftPlot. Mm -hmm. And another one, um, another one built out, uh, like completely converted the Udacity and deep learning AI course materials from using Python TensorFlow to using Swift for TensorFlow. Um, so I would strongly suggest uh, taking a look at those as well as tensorflow.org slash Swift, mm -hmm. um, which has the API documentation and a whole bunch of intro tutorials. That's very interesting because uh, I mean I tried looking at Swift some time back, and I couldn't find the equivalent of uh, something like a Matplotlib uh, in the in the ecosystem. So this Swift plot definitely sounds uh, very interesting, and uh, I'll definitely check that out. So yeah, Karthik did a great job. Okay, that's that's very interesting. So, how do you see this evolving? And I, and I'm sure this is a question you you probably answer day in and day out in your role. But uh, you know how how do you see this uh, uh, evolving? Maybe in the next six months to next two years to uh, anything longer than that. Right. So that's another really great question. Um, and uh, again, the the open design meetings are, are a really good kind of hint mm -hmm. into where Swift is heading. Mm -hmm. um, but we're we're most excited. There's uh, there's something called MLIR. Have you have you heard of that uh, recently or? Mm, no, I haven't. But uh, 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 gotcha. So so I will I will give like the the very quick version. Mm -hmm. um, as to what MLIR is, um, it was announced, I believe, last week or the week before mm -hmm. on Google's, um, Google's main blog, the keynote. Mm -hmm. um, and it, uh, in the sense that we had open sourced MLIR quite some time ago, um, mm -hmm. and we gave it to the, uh, you know, sort of we transferred ownership to the LLVM Foundation. So it's a neutral um, kind of uh, a neutral space for development to occur. Um, it's one of Chris Latner's projects, um, and and part of the motivation for MLIR mm -hmm. is that we've seen this explosion of specialized hardware, um, and also different places that people would want to deploy models. Mm -hmm. And the hard thing is that um, essentially for each one of these deployment targets, um, you would have to hard code a lot of logic mm -hmm. in order to make sure the model would work on those uh, on those devices. So TPUs would be an example, um, mm -hmm. but also things like FPGAs or things like um, uh, things like Arduinos or any kind of different cell phone, right? Like you could, you could have one model that you create and it's beautiful and you love uh, the accuracy that you're getting for it. Um, but if part of it is GPU accelerated yeah, and you deploy it, then, uh, then you're kind of up a creek. And what the situation is right now 
is that sometimes the model would work on CPU, um, mm -hmm. but it would be super slow. Sometimes okay. it just wouldn't work at all. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it just wasn't a consistent experience. And so people are managing all of these different deployment patterns. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, MLIR, what it does is it's kind of a layer on top of LLVM, mm -hmm. which allows you to create one model or one anything, like a program using any high level abstraction you care about. So it could be in Python, it could be in C Sharp, it could be in R, it could be in anything. Mm -hmm. um, and all of the ops will have been mapped to the hardware. So just uh, an additional spec that a hardware, um, a hardware designer provides that says these kinds of ops um, can run on this kind of hardware. Okay. Um, and they're already doing this. This would just kind of be uh, sort of solidifying, um, solidifying that process. Mm -hmm. And 95% of the world's hardware manufacturers have signed on to MLIR mm -hmm. um, to, to sort of map those ops to their hardware. Mm -hmm. um, and what that means from a user perspective is that you can create a model using scikit-learn and you can be like, hey, run, uh, run this, uh, you know, because scikit-learn has boosted trees now, run this boosted right. trees model on CPUs. Mm -hmm. Now, same code, run it on GPUs. And scikit-learn doesn't run on GPUs today. Mm -hmm. And then like, same code, run on TPUs. Same code, run on this cell phone. Mm -hmm. um, and it would just work. And all of the ops that could be accelerated would be accelerated. And mm -hmm. all of the ops that couldn't be accelerated would be punted back to the CPU. Um, mm -hmm. And so, yep. And so part of the way that this is happening um, would be through something called metaprogramming. Mm -hmm. um, we're putting a lot of effort into improving metaprogramming capabilities for Swift, mm -hmm. um, as well as uh, another nice thing about Swift is that we're building um, support for automatic differentiation right into the language. So you can differentiate any function and that makes it play a little bit nicer with the compiler. Yeah. Um, so, so organizationally it's, it's, Quite nice that Swift and MLIR are both um, kind of projects in Chris's work. Yeah. Um, and we and anticipate. Uh, yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sorry, so, you're saying something. No, no, no. I was, I was just going to say that uh, sort of the next step for Swift um, is we we've already explored hooking up to MLIR. Um, mm. It's working quite nicely. And you can, uh, we've, we've also done really interesting um, sort of proof of concepts, like being able to create a custom CUDA kernel um, within a Jupyter notebook. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so all of these things um, we're very, very excited about. We're also very excited about some of the, the recent performance wins that, that we've seen for training on, um, training on uh, kind of uh, sort of more exotic hardware. Um, oh. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's really uh, uh, you know game changing. I would say because uh, as you mentioned, you know uh, things which are working on one hardware don't work on another one, or very often you know uh, GPUs become uh, constrained for a lot of people who might not have machines with the right GPUs. So that's absolutely good. and something something it's something that's very near and dear to my heart in the sense that. Um, 
-hmm. we had a TensorFlow documentation sprint just recently. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it was global. There were more than 60 locations worldwide of developers that were, um, that were logging in and that were making changes to documentation. Mm -hmm. um, and sort of the, the interesting thing to me was that we had 46% of the locations were in Africa. Um, and they were and you know, all of the, the leaders were taking pictures and they were putting them on Twitter. Um, and I was looking at a lot of the pictures and sometimes there weren't very many laptops. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking like, well, gosh, you know, like, well, where are all the laptops if they're, if they're making these changes to documentation? Mm -hmm. um, and it's, they were on GitHub um, opening up the, the markdown files in the browser window and making changes from their cell phones. Wow. Um, yeah, which is, which is amazing, you know? Like, it, it is absolutely just, just astounding. And, the, and, and all I can think of was, you know, like, it is, uh, you know, knowing that people are putting that level of care and effort um, into, uh, into, um, you know, open source and building their skills as developers is, is just huge to me and anything that we can do to make that experience, um, just a tiny bit easier, uh, is certainly worth doing. Oh, very, very interesting. And then I'm sure, uh, this would have a huge impact in the way, uh, we work today and the way we create uh, pipelines uh, today so that's that's definitely well, well the the nice thing is right is like from a developer experience and this is what i love about compiler engineers because all the work that they do is just kind of hidden away um yeah. but from a developer experience perspective all you would be responsible for is just like creating your scikit-learn model and then like and the code looks exactly the same, same. it's just that suddenly you download the version that supports mlar and it's, you know, a bazillion times faster and suddenly has GPU and TPU support. <laughs> and works on any, any mobile device as well. So that's, yep. that's uh, really impressive. And uh, uh, so, so really looking forward to, you know, uh, some of these uh, updates. And, and uh, I mean, I, my, my, my mind is running uh, with the kind of possibilities that... Uh, unlock so so really uh, excited about that and uh, the current version for swift for tensorflow so you said that uh, it's on version 0 0.5 uh, right so yes. when can we expect uh, you know uh, version 1.0 coming out and and uh, what sort of roadmap does that uh, look like uh, from today's perspective obviously a lot of things can change between now and by the time it comes out but uh, any anything which you would want to mention uh, to the community about that yes um so we're uh we're thinking about targeting a 1.0 release for the um sort of q1 or q2 of next year mm -hmm. um we've been if you look at our release cadence we've been releasing pretty regularly um mm -hmm. once every month or month and a half Mm -hmm. Um, and we, we anticipate continuing that. The, um, the other, uh, the other thing that I would be on the lookout for, um, is, is sort of the, the widespread announcement of the, the mobile device, um, support that I was mentioning before. Mm -hmm. Um, but regardless, there's a lot of great stuff to get started. So DeepMind just recently released OpenSpiel, mm -hmm. um, 
which is uh, a library for reinforcement learning games. Mm -hmm. um, and a number of the games are implemented in Swift, um, some of them only implemented in Swift. Wow. Uh, so, so strongly, uh, strongly suggest taking a look. We also have an external contributor from Carnegie Mellon named um, Anthony Platanios, who's been building out sort of a custom reinforcement learning library um, mm -hmm. uh, using, using Swift. Um, so lots of great community involvement. Um, the team is growing uh, at Google in the sense that we, we seem to be attracting a lot of Scala people. Mm -hmm. um, so Eugene Bermako, who's amazing, he implemented metaprogramming in Scala, as well as Dennis Schaubelin, mm -hmm. um, uh is helping with the project, though more from like an open source perspective. Anthony was also responsible, um, and again, he's not a Googler. Um, but uh, was um, helpful in implementing um, the Scala API for regular TensorFlow. Now he's working on Swift. Uh, awesome. So it's, it's really interesting to, to see the people that have been drawn to the project, both internal to Google and external. Wow, and really uh, exciting. And, uh, you know, I'm sure uh, that these things will start coming out in, uh, in in a few months to start with. So, so really looking forward to it. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time today. I, I really enjoyed uh, talking, talking to you. And um, if anybody has questions, please feel free to contact me um, yeah. either on LinkedIn or through email. My, my name is webpage. So W-E-B-P-A-I-G-E -E at google.com. Wow. Okay. That's interesting. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Thanks a lot, uh, Paige, for uh, you know taking that time out. I personally learned a lot of new things in the way this uh, ecosystem is evolving and the kind of changes which are happening. So really looking forward to it. Thanks. Thanks, Paige. And thanks a lot for your time. Yep. Have a great one. Sure. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs>